Today's episode of The Day of Chang Show is brought to you by Yahoo Fantasy Football. We've all made some bad choices in life. I know I have. Like opening up Momofuku Sambar, a Korean burrito bar in 2006. It did not go according to plan. It was a very painful process, obviously a good ending, but needless to say, I don't want to go through that again. But this isn't about me, it's about you. Don't make where you play fantasy football a bad life decision. Play Yahoo Fantasy Football. Yahoo offers up free expert advice. It has the best player experience, and they'll never delete your league history like other apps. Yahoo also has all kinds of fantasy games, like the new best ball, just draft, and you're done. No trades, no waivers, no drama all season. Yahoo is the number one rated app by the FSGA. Make better choices. Choose Yahoo Fantasy Football. Today's show is also brought to you by Great Jones, a startup that makes high-quality cookware that's beautiful and affordable. There's a reason why I'm an investor. Grace and I cook at home with the Great Jones cookware set all the time, making oxtails in their cast iron enamel Dutch oven and spaghetti with fish sauce in their stainless steel stock pot. Great Jones starts at $45 and their whole set costs just $395. I'm excited that they can make high-quality cookware more widely accessible. If you want to upgrade your kitchen tools without spending a fortune, I highly recommend go to greatjonesgoods.com and use the code CHANG, C-H-A-N-G, at checkout for $25 off. That's greatjonesgoods.com and use the promo code CHANG. And now, the Dave Chang Show. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Thank you to Yala Tango for the intro music. This week, we have the great chef, Ileana Reagan, of the restaurant Elizabeth. She was recently in New York for a couple days promoting her book called Burn the Place. It's a memoir about finding her way through cooking and how the profession of cooking gave her order and brought order to what was a very turbulent life. She was shamed for being gay. She was an alcoholic before turning 20, going to rehab, grew up as a farmer's daughter foraging in Indiana, the importance of finding mushrooms, which is a sort of very central part to the book. She opened Elizabeth in Chicago. She spent time working for some of the best chefs and restaurants in the Chicago area, both the front of the house and back of the house. She earned a Michelin star and food and wine best new chef for Elizabeth, James Beard nominated. Worked all over Chicago again. She took a break from Elizabeth this summer. Jenner Tomasco from Restaurant Next is taking over temporarily so she could open up the restaurant Milkweed Inn in the Upper Peninsula of Chicago. It's sort of her ode to how she grew up cooking, and it's with her and her partner uh, opened up a cabin. It's probably the highest end sort of glamping cabin thing you could possibly do with one of the great chefs making your your food. I want to get up there as soon as I can. She talks about closing Kitsune and her bakery bunny. Uh, We connected in South by Southwest in Austin where we cooked a dinner and it was fabulous. I wanted to get her on this podcast. So I was glad that she could make it down to New York because I missed her when she was in Los Angeles. I just think that she should be commended for a lot of the honesty and bravery. She talks about her life. It's not easy to talk about. And we touch upon some important subjects in this podcast. So thank you again, Ileana. Uh, Before we jump into that podcast, I want to get into a quick opinion as fact. Last weekend, I talked on social media a little bit about 
bacon, lettuce, tomato, the BLT, what I consider one of the great sandwiches, maybe the best sandwich in my opinion. I love it so much. I love shitty versions. I love very good versions. And we're in the height of tomato season. And I got a little bit of argument with one of my chef friends because they always make fun of me because I like to make BLTs with sort of, I won't say shitty tomatoes. They're just hothouse tomatoes. I also, if you walk into my apartment, there is a giant wooden bowl of all kinds of tomatoes, from sun golds to heirlooms from Eckerton Farm in uh, Pennsylvania. And basically almost all the farmer's markets, all the farmers are selling delicious tomatoes. So it wasn't me being cheeky. I just prefer to make it with a hothouse tomato, which is... I didn't realize it was going to piss off as many people. Was I trying to sort of like have fun with it? Of course I did. Because I said I adore heirloom summer tomatoes. I do. They're one of my favorite things. I just don't think they deserve to be put into a BLT for a variety of reasons. Kenji Alt-Lopez, the terrific food writer, chef, has written some of the best food articles of the past sort of 10, 15 years at Serious Eats. I didn't know that he wrote this great piece on making a BLT, the perfect BLT, and he has his way, and I'm sure it's delicious. I'm not saying it's not delicious. I'm just saying I prefer using tomatoes that are not heirloom for the sole reason I think a perfectly juicy summer tomato is too juicy for a bacon lettuce tomato sandwich. I also think that iceberg lettuce is the only lettuce that you can use, and it should be chopped sort of a rough chopped so you it doesn't pull away when you bite into it. I do agree 100% with Kenji on almost everything that he says about making a perfect BLT, but I think that it's just too juicy to use a sweet and perfect tomato. And I like to use a tomato that is less juicy. I like to salt a tomato. I like to also put some MSG on it, maybe 30 minutes beforehand so you can extract some more juice because I don't like having it drip all over my hands and my arms. And a lot of BLT recipes you come across tend to talk about how wonderful it is to make it messy. I don't. I believe Tom Kretschmer was his name. He gave a perfect example of a BLT that is delicious, and that's at Finelli Cafe. or Any kind of sort of diner BLT to me is terrific. Like, in fact, like I love diner BLTs. Like I like Anyone, I mean, even like the Hollywood Cafe on like 6th Avenue on 16th Street has a terrific BLT. And it's on shitty white bread with a lot of mayonnaise. The bacon, I think, is better if it's pressed, obviously. But if it's not, it's just like it's really all for texture. In fact, I think it's really a mayonnaise sandwich with texture. And I like to make it with QP. I like to make it with good bacon, but not crazy smoky bacon. And I like to salt my tomatoes ahead of time. I don't have to add MSG to it because I'm always using QP. Sometimes if I don't, it's a blend. That's fine. And any white bread, everyone will say Pepperidge Farm or something like that. Honestly, like anything that's a white bread is going to be delicious that's toasted with some kind of fat. I think Kenji's idea of using bacon fat is a great idea. And in general, you should have rendered bacon fat at your disposal, something Sean Brock told taught me years ago, it's great just to have in general to cook with and to toast your BLTs with. But for me, the best BLT is one that I am not making (laughs) too. So um, it's 
not too often where I go to a restaurant and I get the BLT that I order. And it's kind of the sandwich I always order if it's not a patty melt. And the last thing I want is something that's made on crusty sourdough bread with some fancy little gem lettuce and tomato slices that are way too thick and juicy and some mayonnaise that's more homemade, you know, trying to make it as artisanal as possible. And listen, this is just an opinion. And I laugh at how upset everyone got over a BLT. So in some ways, I'm incredibly glad that it happened. But, um, you know, not everything has to be made with the exact perfect ingredients. Sometimes to get something really delicious, it's about using products that are not perfect. And it would be one thing why I said, I hate fucking tomatoes. That's not the case. I just think that there is room for BLT that's made with hothouse tomatoes. And man, are people's bloods boiling because of it. You should figure that out on your own time. Uh, I will get into this podcast now. But okay, I'll basically say it. I'm right and everyone else is wrong. How about that? Eat the BLT that I just described. And uh, anyone else, they're eating it the wrong way. There you go. Take it or leave it. Oh, man. We're going to get so much hate mail. <laughs> anyway, here's the terrific conversation with Chef Ileana Reagan. Thank you so much, guys. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I've been... I. I've been listening to the podcast. I love them. I don't know if you got my message, but I was like, they're literally like therapy for me. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. And um, therapy has been something you've continued to do over the years? Oh, yeah. Yeah. When did that start? Uh, well, I guess it depends on how you look at it. I mean, I started getting sober um, nine and a half years ago in a sense that's a form of therapy doing 12 step work, but then actually working with a therapist started over a year ago. And how much does AA and recovering from addiction align with personal therapy? How much does yeah, it? Is it like, is it very similar? Because for instance, and then I'll shut up. Dave Cho went through like years and years and years of rehab. Uh, and I didn't, even though probably I should have. Uh, and <laughs> and I've seen some of my close friends and I've been to AA meetings and they're all very different. But you get to ultimately, I think, the same goal, which mm-hmm. is acceptance, awareness of yourself, your shortcomings, and surrendering to this sort of situation. Right, exactly. Yeah, I think it can work both ways for people. But for me, having like not being able to control my alcohol consumption when I drink, like I'm afflicted with what we describe as an allergy, which I feel like is very true. Um, so I kind of need that support from alcoholics as well so that I can like stay sober and keep clean from it because I'll be addicted to anything. Um, but then as far as therapy goes in that working things out mentally, because it's like everything's centered in my mind first. Cause if you take away the alcohol, it looks like bipolar. It looks like manic depression. It looks like depression. It looks like anxiety. It looks like any number of things. Mm. So I need to do that program so that, yeah, I can have the acceptance and the the awareness, like, what did I do wrong? How did I create this situation? Just like that self-reflection. And I think a lot of that is what in therapy I have like those breakthroughs with, you right. know, like lately in therapy, I've been working on boundaries and like, when is it okay to quit for myself? Because sometimes I do projects 
too long because I do end up doing it for others. And it's like, no, that's not, that's not the right thing to be doing for my mental health. And it seems from the book and just getting to know you, there's obviously similarities in, in a lot of how chefs operate. But one thing that I feel I can certainly sympathize and empathize with is how your addiction to work supplemented your addiction to... Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it still does. Basically, I escape in that. I escape in the creativity of work. And it's almost a form of selfishness because I'm thinking about it so much. It keeps me from thinking of myself. So it's like selfishness in reverse. I'm definitely addicted to it. Do you feel this is a good thing? It keeps me out of trouble. Um, well, I guess depending on how you look at it, because then I just, you know, may or may not take on more projects than I need to. But no. um, Because that's what I wrestle with. I mean, people ask me like, yeah, like, um, do you ever sleep and all those kinds of things? Um, And I do in like little fits, but I think that... Ultimately, I mean, I I love what I do. So, I mean, that's, I guess that's a good thing. But yeah, like in your podcast lately, you've been talking a lot about balance. And Mm -hmm. I feel like for the past year and a half, that's what I've really been looking for in my life is balance because it's all one-sided. It's work, you know, and slowly I've been trying to make those changes and I have, but it's. And how does your wife feel about all this? Oh, she is getting to know me more and more because I will go to her and in the past and say, I got this idea. And she's like, great, what is it? You know, and she'd be on board. And now when I'm like, I got this idea, she's like slowly backs up. And it's like, I don't think, I don't want to know what the idea is, you know. Can you explain like <laughs> why, why you feel so good about these ideas? I, I describe them. And I don't always know it's in like a state of mania or something, but I've always described them to my shrink as they're so juicy and ripe that they're, mm-hmm. they need to be plucked. Right. And I have to do them. Uh, <laughs> I don't know yeah. how you feel about that. I have felt that way about some things in the past, but more and more, like I'm trying to get past that. Like uh, when I started my cabin project, it was something I always kind of wanted to do. Um, and at first I was going slow with it, like thinking like, well, maybe it'll be just a summer home. Maybe we don't have to turn it into something, but like, I couldn't resist. I, I just like could not resist being like, we have to have a B and B and we have to have an inn and we have to have people up there. And can you explain what this is? The It's the milkweed. Yeah. Milkweed Inn. That's in the upper peninsula of Michigan. It's, um, on 150 acres, it's um, a cabin. I have my Airstream up there, which again started as like, maybe we'll just get this for vacations. And then it turned into pop-ups around the country. And then we have a really fancy little tent too. And so it'll host 10 people at a time. They'll come on Fridays. I'll cook dinner. I've been cooking um, lake trout from Lake Superior right over the open flames. And then on um, Saturday, they'll have lunch and then they'll have like 15 course dinner, everything from the land. And then on Sunday, a little breakfast and then go home. Then I have like kayaks and fly fishing equipment and a four wheeler and bocce ball and croquet. So there's like, there's hiking to do plenty of things for people to do, but it's in the middle of 
the Hiawatha National Forest and like there's bears and wolves and it's like extremely in the wilderness, which is also really awesome. And how do you temper that with having restaurants? Yeah, exactly. That's a good question. Well, this summer I have Jenner Tomaska working there in um, July and August, and he's running one of my menus. And then next year, where was Jenner from? Next, next year, um, I haven't figured that out yet because next year we'll be open six months. We'll be open May through October, so I'll have to figure out what I'm going to do, but I don't know, like Elizabeth right now has been open since 2012. I have one investor, he's paid off. So basically I kind of get to do what I want there. You know, he's like, yeah, whatever, you know, he doesn't really have too much to say about anything. And so I think maybe we might close for six months or maybe my CDC might run the program along with my guidance from afar, but I haven't figured out what I'm going to do exactly. The problem for me when I have all these ideas is I still have to maintain the old ideas. Right. Yeah, exactly. Do you run in that same kind of problem? Well, yeah. I mean, that's what I'm doing now is trying to figure out how everything fits into place. Um, but we recently closed Kitsune and my I had my bakery in there for a little bit too. But that was kind of like our last effort to try and maintain it because like even with all the accolades, we were just in a part of town that didn't have foot traffic and we ran into that location thing. And, and it was a restaurant of the year by Esquire. Esquire, GQ in 2018. And, you know, locally, a lot of accolades too that were really, really great. And I just think that like maintaining... I, I don't know how New York is. Um, there's a lot more people on the streets at all times. Same thing in San Francisco. It seems like there's a lot more tourism, which can drive the business. But in Chicago and the neighborhood that we were in, at 5 p.m., aside from seeing a couple people walk home, there was just like nothing, even on Saturdays and Sundays, like not a lot of people walking around. So Unless we were an absolute destination, it was really hard to get the neighborhood in. So mostly that's what I attribute it to is our location because like I did everything else we could try to do, you know. So, but closing that, I was able to bring two of my star people who I've really grown to love. And that was part of what I was saying earlier about working on those boundaries. Like I kept Kitsune open probably a year longer than I should have. Because I had two really good people there that like I was happy with and I could turn my back on the place and trust them. And I think that that's something that's really hard to find. It's been really hard for me to find. But Ian, who you've met, I took him to Austin with me into like the edible schoolyard a couple of years ago. He, I didn't have to oversee him with the menu. I just let him do whatever he wanted. And he was fantastic. I felt like he was more approachable with his food than I am. And he did a beautiful job and we got that GQ review under him. And so he was great. My friend, the house manager that I turned into my GM there and taught him how to do the books and the social media and everything. He was amazing. And so I just wanted them to stay and I wanted them to have a job and they loved it. And I wanted them to be happy. Um, luckily I was able to make space for them at Elizabeth. So I brought them with me when we closed, but 
honestly, I waited until they said, chef, we, we can't do this anymore. Cause every day I'd lo- log into the bank account and be like, oh shit, we got to close this place, you mm. know, but I felt like I just couldn't pull the plug until Tim actually came to me and said, chef, we need to close. And I was like, thank God you said that because for some reason I couldn't say it to you guys, you know? Um, so projects have obviously diminished a little bit, like I guess from a natural evolution. So now I'm just focused on Milkweed and Elizabeth. And then I have a two book deal. So I'm, I'm going to do my cookbook next. And you just published your memoir. Mm-hmm. How are you managing all of this? What are your priorities? Because it's almost for my own edification as well as I sort of venture out and mm-hmm. stepping down from day-to-day operations at Momofuku. And I've always admired you as an incredibly innovative chef with an original way of thinking about food. And mm-hmm. we can get into that in a little bit. But it's always seemed to me you want to be more than just a chef in the traditional sense too, right? Mm-hmm. Like where do your priorities lie? Is it just going to be on what's on a plate or do you want it to be outside of that? I don't think I want to be more than, well, what's a traditional chef? I don't even know anymore. <laughs> because I definitely don't want to be 55 years old and running Elizabeth. So if that's what you mean by traditional chef, that is true. Because as I get older, the employees stay the same age and I at my restaurants, which I just can host like 20 people at a time or at my restaurant, I don't have the financial means to be able to have like all the things like, you know, an HR department. And so I have to manage all of those departments, even if I have somebody else kind of helping me with it. So from that sense, like that's not what I want to do 10 years from now or even five years from now. But cooking is something that I do want to be doing always till the end of time. So I think that milkweed was an attempt and is an attempt to close the chapter of the actual restaurant eventually and then move into this thing that feels more right and more natural and more organic and less harmful for the environment and like if I can sustain myself and a future family which I want to try to do which has been impossible with the restaurants and cook the way that I want to cook I feel like it's necessary to do something smaller so I'm actually going the route of like how can I make this smaller and fit more into my lifestyle than like how can I grow and expand because I feel like I've tried that when I did open Kitsune and when I opened Bunny prior that to that and then opened Bunny again, it was all things that I would loved and was extremely interested in, but it just was not working for me. And the food that you're cooking at Milkweed, a little bit more in tune with the toar and nature and the foraging that you're so known for, can you explain to people that are listening that may not be familiar why that is such a cornerstone to your cooking and your upbringing, being out in yeah, nature. I'm Well, that's kind of how I grew up. I grew up on 10 acres of land, and it was pretty rural. And we had several gardens, and everything was fresh all the time and when it was in season. And my dad and I used to go foraging a lot at my grandfather's farm and picking the ripe berries when they were in season or foraging for mushrooms. We hunted morels in the spring, chanterelles in the summer, 
and then Hen of the Woods in the fall. And that was magical to me to be able to go out into the woods or on our garden and just be able to pick what's ready, you know, and my mom preparing it or my father preparing it. And it just made me curious as a child, like, well, what else is out there that we can eat? And so when I began to cook, that became natural for me to be using like those ingredients. And it also just makes sense to me. Like right now, being at Milkweed, I'm able to go out into the perimeter of the woods and the blackberries are green right now. And the dewberries are like ruby red color. And the strawberries have been coming up for like three weeks now. They're really tiny and really sweet. It's so good and it's so perfect. And being able to pick exactly what I need at the exact right time and put that on the plate is, I love that, Mm. you know? Now, this is something that I know a lot of chefs wrestle with is you mentioned running Elizabeth and Kitsune and doing the books and the PR and HR because being a small business, as much as you'd like to do these things, no, you just don't have the finances to outsource it or to mm-hmm. have a staff that can do it. So ultimately, as the owner, you have to do it yourself. Right. And oftentimes that's as soul-sucking as anything could possibly be because mm-hmm. you got in this business to actually express yourself through food. Right. <laughs> How do you wrestle with that? Because it seems opening up milkweed is an attempt to sort of reclaim what that might be like. So how do you balance the business versus the craft artistry of, you know, your food and your vision? That's, I feel like that's always a work in progress, you know, like I've been struggling with that for so long. And I think a lot of that is, I think I express the struggle with that in my book, but as I move forward, I think for me, making it a little bit smaller and more manageable is the way to do it. Um, I know that there's a lot of people and, and I've heard it, you know, you also mentioned like, you know, you find the people and you can put them in the right spaces and it allows you to do your thing and kind of grow. And I don't know if maybe I've just been too much of a control freak or got too used to being able to have my hands in everything and that Elizabeth is such a distillation of myself and milkweed now will be another distillation even further that it's almost too hard to bring people into those Mm. circles and put them into those positions and jobs and, um, So I think making it even a little bit smaller for me, uh, no matter the repercussions of finances or whatever it is, like my ultimate goal is like I'm saying is like trying to be happy. And I've been in that place with the restaurant industry for the last couple of years that I've felt more beaten down, even with all the beautiful accolades. I know that that explain the beaten down and what, what that is in relation to. Well, I think the constant revolving door, like I do have some employees that have stayed for a while, but the ones that just end up passing through and even the ones who I've had for a while, you know, training them and teaching them to get to a level to where like I can step away or I can have some time in my life that's actually focused on maybe something else or, you know, writing my book or 
spending time with my wife or whatever it is. But then suddenly it's like, oh, you know, chef, hey, I got to leave. So it was two years of working towards getting somebody to a level and people come in, they want to build their resume and I want to help them. But it's very difficult to get somebody to stay with me long term. You know, I've had like two years, three years, things like that. But I feel like still that revolving door, it's almost like um, my CDC recently at Elizabeth, she's moving to LA, which I'm so happy for her. And I absolutely love her, but she's also become my really close friend. And ultimately, I think I'm a bad manager. Like, I'm just not good at managing people because like, here's my CDC that has become like, one of my best friends and somebody that I love as a person who, you know, I'm happy that they are growing and moving, but then it's like that same thing. And I feel like every time this happens, like I go through a breakup mm -hmm. and I'm like depressed and sad and like, but then there's also that part like, shit, I got to do this again with somebody. And emotionally it's like too hard, you know, like here I am every couple of years breaking up with somebody that I love and trust. So then it's like, I get beaten down, you know? <laughs> I mean, that's uh, one of the best ways I've ever heard uh, yeah. that experience articulated or communicated because it creates apathy mm -hmm. eventually, I think, because having experienced that and talking about boundaries or for myself understanding why I feel the way I do. And I definitely wrestle with the same thing you've gone through about, mm -hmm. am I a bad manager? Mm -hmm. Because obviously some people leave. Mm -hmm. That's just the way life is. Yeah. But with someone that is someone you consider basically family, and mm -hmm. it's almost feeling like you're not good enough to keep them around. Mm -hmm. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring is to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G, ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Today's show is also brought to you by Audible. Audible is where inspiring voices and compelling stories open listeners up to new experiences and ways of thinking. Audible delivers bestsellers, businesses, self-improvement, memoirs, and more, all professionally narrated by actors, authors, and motivational superstars like Rachel Hollis and Mel Robbins. Now, as an Audible member, you get more than ever before. Get three titles every month, one audiobook plus two Audible originals that you can't hear anywhere else. You also get unlimited access to more than 100 of audio-guided fitness programs plus free access to the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. That's a deal in and of itself. With their app, you can access Audible anytime on any device. It will always pick up where you left off. Audible also offers free and easy audiobook exchanges, credits that roll over for a year, and a library you could keep forever, even if you cancel. I love Audible. I've just been listening to this new book, 
called Range by David Epstein. It's fantastic. And it's just making my commute to work, walking to work that much better. Uh, highly recommend it. And it's great that I can read that book and many more on Audible. Start listening with a 30-day Audible trial and get your first audiobook plus two Audible originals for free. Visit audible.com slash majordomo or text majordomo, M-A-J-O-R-D-O-M-O to 500-500. That's audible, A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash majordomo or text majordomo to 500-500. And now back to the show. I think like, okay, well, maybe, you know, I've given this a seven-year run. We're trying it at this level and have gotten to some really great goals and some really great places and have built my career to a place that I love. So, like, how do I get this now to be a little bit less draining and a little bit more manageable just because, like, like I was saying too, like I want to be able to have a family. And honestly, this year I did end up getting pregnant. I was pregnant when we were in Austin and then I had a miscarriage. I'm and so I, sorry. No, that's okay. Um, it's very common and happens to a lot of women. And we probably don't talk about it as much as we should as women to one another because it is hard. But almost everybody that I've met that has had children has been like, I've gone through that too, you know, but I feel like a big part of that, well, I'm older, so I'm almost 40, but also that it's like so stressful, the job, you know, that I'm almost like, I don't even know if I can do this while I'm running these restaurants, you know? And I, I feel like that brings up the conversation where people are always like, oh, where's all the women chefs? And it's like, well, if we want to have some babies, it's really complicated. You know what I mean? It's, especially if it's at a, at a higher level. Um, well, everything you're telling me, it's like breaking my heart because, you're doing what you love, but what you love is also ruining your life. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't know if you but like, that's how I feel about it sometimes. Or it's like, yeah. how do, now when I say ruining your life, it's like, wait, like, how do I get that balance? And that's what I yeah. really balance is not balanced is right. ruined life. Yeah, I know. I feel like I'm just beneath the surface on that. Like, people were, an example is like, people were really shocked that we closed Kitsune and bunny recently and um we're just kind of like baffled and i don't know how to describe that to people like okay yes it may have from the outside look like everything was going really really well but you know when you really look at all those components it takes to run a business it's almost nearly impossible especially when you want to put forth quality and so Getting people to really understand any of that is really, really complicated. Um, yeah, but, you know, that's the hard thing. And that's something I was trying to convey in the book because I actually didn't there may be like a quarter of the book is focused on my career and everything's leading up to it, which I think is part of how I got to where I was. But I didn't know how to reflect on the past 10 years and not sound ungrateful. And I was worried about that because I'm so grateful and I love, I do love so much what I do and that's why I continue to do it. 
And as much as some of those Are you giving things, yourself the opportunity to appreciate what you've done though? Yeah, I don't even know if I think about it sometimes because I'm so busy. What's next? <laughs> What's next, right? Yeah. Um, but it's really, really complicated. And I didn't want to sound ungrateful because I am. And 80% of the time, like I'm extremely happy about all of that stuff. And I have gotten to the point where I tell the staff, like, look, if the place is literally burning down, don't call me, just call the fire department, you know, like there's nothing I can do, especially if I'm not there. And so there is, you know, I've gotten to the point where there is a good amount of space between me and some of it, but ultimately it is complicated. And I, yeah, I really struggled with being able to describe my current work life and the way I go about it, at least in words and in story form, I think mostly because I was nervous about how just telling the truth about it. And even though I was very honest in most of the book about everything else, like just really telling the truth about that work part, I tried to get it across, but I was worried about how that was going to mm. sound, you know? Well, I think one of the reasons why the outside world has a hard time understanding why we would do something so absurdly hard is that chefs like yourself in the past have never had the forum, quite frankly, to express themselves mm -hmm. or to articulate themselves in a book that you wrote, right? And this mm -hmm. should continue this trend and more and more chefs that are open about what it's actually like will mm -hmm. eventually, I think, even out and people will be like, oh, I didn't know this, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that your busy restaurant was actually not just minting money. I didn't mm -hmm. know that you're having some personal issues mm -hmm. that if it happened to any other career, you'd be able to take right. time. And it just is a, a reckoning of a blue collar labor mm -hmm. with a world that's increasingly professionalized and what quote unquote white collar. Uh -huh. And right now this generation that we're in is it's turbulent and I don't right. know exactly how it's going to shake out, but it's the same thing when, you know, my son Hugo, he probably won't have to deal with a lot of the racist stuff that I've had to go with mm -hmm. and he'll have a new set of problems. And right now, unfortunately, our chef generation <laughs> has to right. deal with all these things that right. have never really been dealt with before. Right, exactly. But I'm happy that people are really opening up about it because honestly, until I went to, I think it was not this past MAD, but the one before when we spent a lot of time talking about mental health, I felt so good because that was a couple years ago now where I was getting to the point where I was like, starting to get beaten down, you know, and that was really, really a good experience for me to think about like, okay, because I was starting to feel like maybe I'm the only one because everybody around me seemed to be like, you know, hashtag chef life, it's all good. And I'm just like, mm -mm. what, what are they talking about? <laughs> you know, but it was so good to be in an environment where we were all talking about mental health and the well-being of staff, and that really made me feel like rejuvenated. And I think that that's also part of what continues to help me. Like I said, listening to your, your podcast and going through some of those, um, you know, the people that you have on talking about management or the people, no matter what industry they're in. And talking about mental health and all those things. And I love the podcast you did with your chef that's 
running um is it kwai kawi okay yeah i'm actually gonna go over to the hudson yards today because i want to go explore around in there but um we'll get you out of here and okay um yeah because i really that was one of the podcasts that i was so appreciated because i could so feel her pressure like the way she was thinking and the way she was expressing herself and just feeling that I was like yes you know and so like that has been so nice to hear that and it to be put out there and I hope that more chefs and actually just people in small businesses in general I hope that they're listening to that so that they can feel like okay this is not the end of the world you know um well I appreciate you listening and and uh it's these moments where I'm I'm glad that we do the podcast. If it, mm-hmm. even if it was just you listening, mm-hmm. right? Um, a lot of these things are hard to talk about, which is why no one really talks about them. But the fact that the power of just communicating the difficult nature. Right? And mm-hmm. I remember in one of those podcasts with Unjo, she literally felt like, and again, if you weren't in this position, you may not know what and how she said this, but she's like, I went out, I was just hoping I could get hit by a bus. <laughs> Right. And I was like, well, yeah, I've, I've definitely, I'm, I'm, I'm going to assume you felt that too. Right. It's, it's yeah. something well, that- that's why I'm laughing. Cause, uh, even when I was opening bunny again in Kitsune to try to repair, like some of the finances, my CDC was over with me there. And she just said, you know, today I thought about throwing myself down the stairs and, you know, maybe I'd get a broken leg or whatever. And I'd get a free meal in the hospital. And I was like, I literally thought the same thing. Hmm. Like I was like, you know, and it's just a crazy dark passing thought that I think probably a lot of us have in multiple industries, but just like that thought sometimes of like, the pressure and the work and everything. It's crazy, but it's something too that I can share with others and laugh about and be like, yeah, that's crazy, but. You're not going to act on it, but it shows you an insight as to how you feel. Right. It's just complete and utter frustration. Mm -hmm. And maybe just the academic thought of it is relief. Mm -hmm. You know, that's Mm -hmm. the way I've always thought about it. And Mm -hmm. I was nervous when we spoke about it because I was like, man, if you work at a, like a bank and you hear this, you'd be like, you're not going to go do some investment bank bro and be like, dude, I thought about falling down the stairs because <laughs> shit's so hard. I heard, I thought about getting hit by a car because God damn it, this TPS report is too fucking hard to make. Right. And it's a very incredibly dumb business that we're in. Mm-hmm. And I oftentimes lament that we're in it and then- Whenever I complain and go down these rabbit holes, much like we have in the past together, mm-hmm. talking about how stupid this business is, almost always you come out the other side being like, fuck, I love this business. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And most of that happens for me like when I'm actually just cooking food. So that part of it, which is sometimes as a business owner, as you know, becomes a small part still is enough to keep me doing it. That's the best thing ever. Cooking food and eating food. You know, I'm working on my own book a little bit and I'm just in general having a lot more perspective because I've had a lot of the similar conversations with my shrink and then with my own chefs about their own lives and the perspectives it takes as you sort of mature in this business. 
And the one realization I've maybe come to, and I believe that it's right for me, is that pursuit of what you're describing of just moving forward. I wonder if the right answer is to not move forward. Mm-hmm. That we should attempt to do the thing we're not supposed to do, which is to <laughs> yeah, not do like, it. And, and like, and I'm not sure, but I always wonder. <laughs> and I was explaining this to Chris Yang the other day. Maybe to get to that next peak, that next chapter in your life, you actually have to abandon everything that you learned to get to the first mountain peak. Mm-hmm. And the reason why it's so hard for sous chefs or CDCs to learn this is because they're like, wait, to get to that next point, I have to abandon everything that got me here. And there's no guarantee that I'm going to be successful. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes what you have to abandon is anything you think is sensible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Right. Mm-hmm. And what your default setting is as a person. And right. I think for me, and I think maybe just a little bit for you too, it's always working on the next project. It's doing this. It's always worrying about other people first mm-hmm. and foremost. And I always wonder is maybe the thing you need to do is to work on yourself first. Mm-hmm. And well, yeah, that's exactly what I think when you asked at the beginning, you know, like being a workaholic and how I was saying like, yeah, it's almost like selfish because like that thinking about all the other people and thinking about work keeps me from thinking about myself and actually what can be good for me or what I need to do. Um, so that's been a, a big discussion for me in therapy is like, how do I, I'm so good at seeing where other people have cross boundaries or where they need to create boundaries or whatever it may be, or, but like, then when it comes to myself, I'm like, I can't, it's like so blurry and just can't see it. But I have learned in the past three or four years with having some other businesses, like, okay, I actually have to step back. And when the next person comes up and says, Hey, do you want to do this project? the answer for sure is no, you know, like at least I got that part clear because I have been approached like, Hey, do you want to put your bakery in here? Do you want to reconcept Kitsune and put it at this space or whatever it may be? And it's just like, no, no, no. I, (laughs) it's, it's very similar conversations I've been having with myself because as much as I say, no, I still say yes so much. And then that gets into the addiction point because I'm certainly at a point now, even though I'm transitioning, it's like, when you're telling me all these things, I'm like, fuck, this is so, so similar to me is I wonder, and I don't have the idea, but do you think that the answer for yourself might be literally doing the opposite of what you think you should be doing? Oh, yeah. Like going back to talking about AA a little bit, one of the things that people kind of say is first thought wrong, you know? And so like taking that initial thing that comes to my head, like that great idea I have or what my response is going to be to somebody that offers something. And if my first thought is usually like, yeah, let's do that or whatever. And thinking like, okay, no, that first thought is always going to be wrong and giving myself some time to really think things through. Um, I was about three years ago approached by some people to work on an edibles company. And at first I said, yeah, 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 let's do it, you know? And 
then it got delayed for a long time and then it got close again and I was doing some things and working at this grow plant and, you know, making little marijuana gummies and all different kinds of cool flavors. And that was fun. It was fun to think about it scientifically and just working with all those equations. And then it petered out again. And at that point I was like, no, I'm not going to do it. And then I was approached again recently by them and they had all this spread of all this stuff that looked like such a great idea with the business. And I was actually able to say no, because I had gotten to that point where I knew I was nearing on Kitsune having to close potentially. And Elizabeth was, you know, good, but it's like, okay, what's next? And I had just gotten the mortgage for the cabin and I decided I was able to say no, you know, like I felt like, okay, if I can get down to like these next two things, like eventually Elizabeth or stabilize Kitsune and have milkweed, like if it's the three things or the two things, no matter what it is, like those are a good direction. And it felt really good to be able to just honestly, to just say no to just say no to drugs. First thought wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I kept on doing. It's, but it's not so different because that desire to do something to make yourself feel something, quite frankly, mm-hmm. like to the best way I was describing it, like um, the work that I try to do now that gets me into these freak out modes, the freak out feeling mm-hmm. has remained the same throughout this entire trajectory of my career. Mm-hmm. It's just that the, the difficulty level has increased but I've still felt the same amount of stress and pain. Mm-hmm. And I joke, it's like, I just want to learn how to juggle. Mm-hmm. And it was two tennis balls. Then it turned into glasses. Yeah. Then it turned into a chainsaw. And now yeah. I'm, you got chainsaws with babies and everything. And it just <laughs> continues to get more and more complex. But right. my feeling of fear of not doing it is as same as it was when I was just throwing mm-hmm. eggs up in the air. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how much of that is the addiction to work to start where to finish where we started, it's someone that's gone through AA and in your book, a lot of it is about alcoholism and how Mm -hmm. it ran in your family. And I don't want to talk too much because people should read the book. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very brave of you to talk about these things because I can't Mm -hmm. imagine. And it's very fun to think about or to talk about, particularly Mm -hmm. with your own struggles. But what does that addiction feel like for you, particularly being in an industry that alcohol and drugs are so rampant Mm -hmm. and how do you stay clean? Honestly, like it doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me with my staff. And actually I think a lot of the people, at least now that are attracted to working with me generally don't abuse too many drugs or alcohol. And if they do, they usually find themselves out pretty quickly because they can't maintain the level of work that we need to do. Um, But where does this release for you come from if you can't just like crack open a beer or drink something because you'll go down a terrible rabbit hole? Right. Where do you let that release happen? Because is it just more work? I think that that is it sometimes. But also, for me, it happens in AA meetings. It happens talking to my sponsor. It happens going to therapy. It happens actually cooking food and, like, doing the things that I really love about this job. It happens, like, just having some downtime and, like, 
doing the Netflix and chill thing with my wife. So, you know, it can't be like a release, like maybe typical people in our industry enjoy. Like, you know, like some of my chefs, they can go out after work and drink some beers together and just like shrug the night off. And, you know, I go home and, and feed the dogs and take a shower and then maybe, you know, watch an episode of Stranger Things or something, you know, like, uh, but even going to the cabin lately and being up there for the past three months and just being in nature in the capacity that I want to be in nature has been extremely settling. So let's take another quick break to hear from our sponsors. Support for today's show comes from Sonos. Sonos meticulously designs every speaker from the inside out. They're experts in acoustics and engineering, even work with Oscar and Grammy-winning producers, mixers, and artists to ensure an immersive listening experience. Getting started is easy. Just plug your speaker in and open the app, then connect all your favorite streaming services. Start with one speaker and connect more over Wi-Fi whenever you're ready. All Sonos speakers and components work together so you can customize your sound system. You can also connect your TV or turntable to listen to everything you love. I love Sonos. I've had it in all my apartments. It's the best because, number one, it's easy to install. And I've said it before, I'll say it again. I am an idiot at home installation of electronics. And if I can do it, I promise you, you can. And it's also incredibly easy to use. I can listen to an album and then I can watch a sci-fi movie and then roll into a sporting event and change the sound for whatever I'm watching. So go to Sonos.com to learn more. And now back to the show. Does the addiction to work and addiction to alcohol and just, it's only recently where I'm like, fuck, I guess I'm an addict. I just didn't go to rehab. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, Dave Cho has been offering me to go to rehab in Arizona for a long time now. And I'm always like indignant, like, nope, not me. Um, but now I'm like, well, fuck, I maybe, maybe should go, even though I don't have a drinking problem right. anymore. And I, 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 I'm very clean. I just, mm-hmm. my addiction is work and mm-hmm. a byproduct of that addiction is anger. Mm-hmm. Are you an angry person? Because when I talk to you and a lot of people that like hear you, like, oh my gosh, she's so soft-spoken and she makes <laughs> right. this beautiful food and... But you read the book, there's a lot of shit there. Yeah, and definitely I express some of that anger in, you know, periods of time. And I think sometimes my reaction to frustration or sadness comes out first in anger. Like, that's my first emotion. It's like... I can't even imagine you that. But even me angry looks like me just, like, going upstairs at work quietly, packing up my computer, going in putting it in my backpack and walking out the back door and then texting, you know, my CDC or my friend, the house manager, whoever it is, and say, I'll talk to you later. I just left. I'm a little bit frustrated. Don't worry about it. We can catch up later. So in the past year, I think one time I took a a wine glass that was out front and I walked in the back and our kitchen's out front. So it's just our storage, like our back dry goods and our refrigerators in the back. I threw it against the wall and then I went upstairs, grabbed my things and left. And it was um, because my CDC kept bugging me about getting a dishwasher at a time when we couldn't afford one. And there was plenty of back of the house that we were just all taking turns doing the dishes. And 
What hit me, though, was I had put my hand in our silverware bin that was full of water, and the water at our work comes out at like 190 degrees, so it burned me, and that was the point. It was like the dishwasher conversation, the lack of money for it, the not understanding it, the hot water. That was the big, big thing that happened this year where it was like, whoa, chef's mad. Mm. And unfortunately, probably my wife has experienced most of like me being angry and not at her, but just about work. And it's happened at home and me talking about it and being, you know, frustrated and saying this happened or that happened. And she's often there too. So she's a part of that as well. And Sometimes it's really good that we've been able to talk about it together, but then sometimes it can be a little bit toxic because we're both talking about the negative things together. But we get a little bit of that release from that. And and then there's also times where I just say, you know, if she's been there and I haven't, like if there's some negative things that have happened, I'm like, I just don't even want to know, you know, like I don't want to go down that hole right now. Do you feel when you get angry and when you threw the wine glass, did I've always wanted to ask other chefs this. Did you feel like you fell off the wagon? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Definitely, because I really, really try hard to not get angry. And it's not, I guess in the beginning, I really, really tried hard not to get angry. But now it's almost like not anger as much as it is just disappointment and like this thought of like feeling of hopelessness. Like, is this ever going to get better? Is this ever going to change? Like, am I ever not going to have to have this conversation talking about the same things over and over and over and over again? Um, You beat yourself down and I've, I've located with my, my shrink, the feeling when I get angry is exactly the same kind of feeling when I expected better of myself. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't control mm-hmm. it for the same reason, like when someone leaves me mm-hmm. and leaves the company, I hold myself accountable and I'm like, mm-hmm. fuck, I should have been better. Mm-hmm. And it's the same kind of strive to constantly make your food better and you a more right. accountable mm-hmm. chef that ultimately is poisonous too. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. the thing I think everyone needs to talk a little bit more about. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you talk about that, like it's some kind of inherent guilt that, and we just like place it on ourselves. And I don't know if that's a learned behavior or if it's part of those highs and lows, but that's something too, I've noticed, you know, that's why I was really excited to be here to talk to you because from listening to some of your past episodes and talking about like, you know, I just want to be better. Like I hear you say that a lot and I think that a lot. And I feel like that statement is sometimes attached to a lot of guilt. Mm-hmm. And I feel that same way. And so that's something too that I try to avoid at work, like that getting angry. And like you mentioned, feeling like you fell off the wagon because when I react in a way that I feel like doesn't line up with who I am or what I expect of myself, then I immediately go through a lot of regret and guilt. And so that sometimes is more painful than all the other things, you know, um, that feeling that comes afterwards. So yeah, it's something that I try really hard to avoid and, And unfortunately, too, it's come out sometimes like from work, that stress and that anger, like I was saying, is, 
even comes out at home and me starting a fight with Anna for no reason. And that's something too I've worked on a lot in therapy is like, how do I stop these things before they happen? And then I start to argue at home or it comes out somewhere else or it becomes a snarky comment to one of my staff. Like if I hold back on the things, like if I try to stuff it all back down, the things that are frustrating me or making me angry, it's ultimately going to come out sideways. Mm -hmm. And where do I get that like little flag or that ding inside my brain that says, hey, you're not comfortable with that or that hurt your feelings or whatever it might be and be able to go to that person and talk it out first. Because like the last thing I want to do is go up to somebody and be like, Hey, you hurt my feelings. Let's discuss it. Or, Hey, you know, that thing kind of frustrated me or whatever. I think maybe I should be doing as a boss, you know, maybe not the, you hurt my feelings part, but whatever it was, you know, and being able to have like that, open conversation so that it can be better instead of later, a week later, me saying some like passive aggressive comment to them, you know? The difficulty of not getting angry though, holding back the snarky comment and to rise above your default setting, as I say often to myself, Mm -hmm. and I was telling this to Chris Yang and to Gabe Bula who are helping me out. I think it's as difficult when you see a cook that is in the weeds and the tickets are flying in and you just, and when you're in that position, when you just start out, your initial reaction is I got to move fucking faster, 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 because right. that's just makes sense. Mm-hmm. I'm in the weeds because I'm behind. Mm-hmm. I got to move faster. Mm-hmm. Chef's pissed at me. I'm letting the entire kitchen down. Mm-hmm. And it takes very, you see it. And when you see it, you never forget it. Mm-hmm. An experienced cook that's learned how to control the flow of things. Mm-hmm. The only way to get out is to stop, mm-hmm. to assess the situation, to look at your mise en place, reorganize it, maybe even go deep around the hole so mm-hmm. you can get out of it. Mm-hmm. And that's been most, sort of my mantra is maybe I have to do the thing that I can't do right now, but I know as a line cook, I could get out of the weeds eventually. And that was a very powerful thing, but that took a lot of time. And even still, you don't always get out because you got to fight that urge Right. And I don't know what it is for you or for everyone else, but there are other ways. And I think that's what we all need to explore is being in the weeds. It's hard for anyone else to understand. Right. And man, I don't have to go to rehab, I hope. (laughs) But when I lose my temper, like the other day I was in the bedroom and I just didn't even realize I was raising my voice on the phone because we screwed up a meeting. And I had to remind myself that. There were other people in the bedroom. They all heard me really frustrated. And I left the bedroom and I said, everyone, I'm, I'm really sorry. Um, there's no reason for me to behave this way. I explained the situation. And what I said is, I didn't have the opportunity to think clearly. Can you guys help me? Do you guys have any suggestions? And it doesn't, this is at home. And mm-hmm. I didn't rationalize what I did. And I just simply said like, I didn't know how to handle the situation and I'm trying right now to, mm-hmm. and I hope you forgive me for losing my temper on the mm-hmm. phone. Mm-hmm. And that's how I've been processing it a lot is like, there's two ways. Either I let people know around me that what we've now termed as a, I think my shrink has known a long time, but it's affected dysregulation. Like I can't control my emotions. Uh-huh. There's like a temporary psychosis that uh-huh. happens when I see something that is meaningful to me right. get taken away. And I just, that's uh-huh. how I go crazy in a kitchen. Uh-huh. And 
I've struggled for the longest time to actually make sure that never happens. And maybe now as I let certain people around me know, hey, these are things that trigger something in me. Right. And it's not comfortable telling you this, but mm-hmm. I'd rather you know than to have me turn into an incredible halt. Alternatively, when I have an argument with my wife, and when you were talking about just having an argument for no reason because you need some release, the one thing that I think I'm getting better at and doesn't make me feel better about though, mm-hmm. is after I've made a mistake, right? Recently she made, not a jab, but I took it as like the end of the world to mm-hmm. me. And I was like, what the fuck am I doing? Like 25 minutes into the argument, I was like, what am I doing? <sighs> right. <laughs> I am such a dumbass. And I just was like, listen, like I can tell you why what you said triggered these things. Mm-hmm. But that's been a lot of work <laughs> mm-hmm. to get to that point. Mm-hmm. But I still felt like, death. Right. Yeah. And I can't get out of my own way. Like, uh, how do you feel like when all these things are happening that it's going to be okay? Or do you have mechanisms that prevent you from doing this other than sort of taking that walk? When you right. go on that walk, put your bag in your, you know, you're walking out the door. Mm-hmm. What's going through your head? Oh my God. That's, it could be any number of things, you know, but Usually with me, like I said, that first emotion is anger. And then later it comes with the regret. But like the walking out the door at least prevents some of the regret. It gets me out without saying the thing that I probably will have to go back and apologize for, you know, but like the same thing um, that you're talking about with grace is like, Honestly, you were, I don't know how many episodes ago this was, but you had mentioned being on a time release Wellbutrin. Mm-hmm. And for me, what happened, I was on Wellbutrin for a while, but then um, my anxiety was still really high, almost to the point where I was becoming like ultra paranoid. And so I started talking with my doctor about it and I got Lexapro and at home, it kind of helped change the dynamic because I had some tools from therapy and I had plenty of tools from AA, but I just kind of needed that like little extra thing to help me chemically, which allowed me to slow down a Mm -hmm. little bit and not, I still do mess up. Like I still get to that point where like, if she says something, then I go through that same exact experience that you're talking about. It might be 10, 15 minutes into the argument where I'm like, wait a second, like this is so crazy. Like, I don't even need to be talking about this right now, but most of the time it's been preventative. And so like over the past year and a half now, I've been able to even better prevent some of those situations to get to the point where instead it's like, okay, instead of sitting here and facing whatever's going on, like I'm just going to walk out or take a breather or whatever it is to be able to step outside and then later go back without at least having said maybe the harmful or stupid thing. Cause I'm also a terrible arguer. So it's like no point for me to really get into arguments with people, especially my wife, because I'm always going to lose. So yeah, I was like definitely not ever made for law or litigation, you know, like, so yeah, it's always better for me to just like get the hell out. Mm. Well, I'm just thinking like, man, if you're listening to this podcast and you got through the end, I was like, man, where do you hear this shit? (laughs) (laughs) 
Right. Oh, man. So I want to get you out of here so you can get some lunch. Um, you're in New York right now. Uh, what else are you doing for the book? Well, I did a little event in Philly with Jeff, and that was for the Philly Chef Conference. Then I came here. I was talking to Cherry Bomb yesterday. I went to Vice Munchies today and cooked a couple things from their roof. But that was something that was pre-book stuff. You know, that was something we'd been wanting to do for a while anyways, and that was a lot of fun. And then, oh, I had a book event at Rizzoli Bookstore last night, like a little reading. And so there was a couple things that was bringing me this way. And um, But honestly, it's a really quick trip because I'm going straight back to Chicago tomorrow morning and then back up to the cabin because uh, we start, we have our friends and family and have some press coming um, the 26th through the 28th. Got to get ready for that. Yeah. Well, check out Restaurant Elizabeth. Uh, Ileana is one of the best chefs in America and I think a real original voice. And we didn't get too deep into your career and working at Schwa. And, um, what did you do at Alinea? Uh, at Alinea, I was a front waiter. Right. I started as back waiter or food runner, front waiter or back waiter, then front And Schwa waiter. was in the front of the house as well. Uh, Schwa, I just stodged for a little bit here and there in the kitchen. And prior to the, um, then I worked at Trio when Grant was a baby. That was it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think he was in like 26. Um, and there I was the expediter for most of the time that I was there. But yeah, I had worked at a lot of um, restaurants in Chicago, both front of the house, back of the house. And I think it's important that for all that you saw in the Chicago dining scene, you really did carve out your own voice. And anytime someone can do that, I just don't know if they ever get enough. uh, You can't be congratulated enough for doing that because it's so hard to do that. Thank you. And to do it on your own terms and uh, very excited to see what happens at Milkweed and wish you continued success. And let's keep in touch whenever you need anything, you know. Probably didn't get it because uh, I changed some information. So I'll, I'll update uh-huh. you on all that stuff. But um, thank yeah, you. Go definitely. go buy the book. Thanks. The title is? Burn the Place. And there's a reason that mushrooms are on the cover. Mushrooms are on the cover because they play a very integral role throughout, well, not only my whole life, but um, very much in leading up to my identity as a chef. And I don't think you'll look at mushrooms the same way ever again. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that was my conversation with the great chef, Ileana Reagan. Please visit her restaurant, Elizabeth. And if you get the chance, make the time to visit her new restaurant slash sort of inn in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, the Milkweed Inn. Uh, Want to get to a Ask Dave at MajorDomoMedia.com question. Micah Peterson asks, wow, this is the, probably the most email question we have next to like, where I want to eat or shit like that. Micah Peterson asks, I've never seen the movie myself, but I would love to hear what irks you the most about the movie Burnt. Thanks again, man. Well, Micah, I've always maintained that Burnt is one of the worst movies ever made for the culinary profession. The only thing it gets right is the time where Bradley Cooper falls off the bandwagon when he realizes that he failed a dinner that was supposed to be for the Michelin inspector wind up being just a regular 
bunch of guests. And he winds up at his arch nemesis's restaurant and he has a breakdown. That, I thought, was the only real moment in the whole fucking movie. I don't know where to begin. I think we probably need to do a rewatchables with the whole ringer staff. But starting off with a million oysters as penance, that's bullshit. Uh, <laughs> everything was based on a true story based on a true story, right? It's like telephone game of what cooking could be. Um, no one really cooks sous vide that way or even looks at it that way. Even the plating, like there's a dish where like they're plating a sauce plate on like a plate that's riddled with holes to how the brigade was set up to the fact that like he's sleeping in a hotel, like no chefs make that much money where they can do it. No one would even act that way or go to the fish market the way they do or construct dishes the way they do. Like the whole thing was fictitious. Best example I can say of how it was wrong, a lot of the facts were wrong, is the Michelin guy just doesn't work that fucking way. Maybe they do it in Europe, but I'm pretty sure they don't. They don't announce themselves. They don't fucking like eat the way they do, and it's just not the way that is. It's just patently wrong in a variety of ways, uh, whether it's the critics coming to the restaurants, whether it's the construction of the menu, the whole sort of vibe of how a restaurant is created is wrong. Again, like I always say that the, the movie that Burnt should have been was A Star is Born, and A Star is Born should have been Burnt. That is more fitting. I think Bradley Cooper really was on a, on a road towards self-destruction, not redemption. Anyway, I don't think you, anyone should watch the movie Burnt unless they want to laugh at a bad movie. It could have been good, but also like any movie that has fucking bullshit chef tattoos, it's just wrong. I mean, right there, it just doesn't work. So... There are other movies that are out there. I'll answer one more. Sean Brecker asks, I'm always curious if chefs prefer to cook in open kitchens or if they prefer to cook behind closed doors. I'm guessing it's a matter of personal preference, but I was wondering if that was a hot button subject for chefs. Uh, Sean, I can tell you from experience, I never wanted an open kitchen because I hate having to, at the time, interact with guests. There's so many things that you can do in a closed kitchen that are just easier. Everything... Is harder when it's an open kitchen. And simultaneously, I guess, makes it better because it's transparent. But there is a sense when you're in an open kitchen that you're a, an animal in a zoo. And I think, honestly, everything in a closed kitchen that becomes an open kitchen, if you work in an open kitchen, everything is sort of sensible. There's nothing that should really change. The real difference is, is customer-cook interaction. Cooks are not trained to be cordial and nice, particularly when they're in the fucking weeds, right? When they're going down and plates are coming and flying in and they have to get it all happening and it's a stressful environment, the last thing a cook or sous chef or chef wants to do is have a congenial conversation with the guest. Of course we would, but it's hard not to come across as an asshole. That's the hardest thing. I will say that having an open kitchen made me an infinitely better cook and a chef because it basically made me be the best, best version of myself. And that's funny too. I'm sure some people listening to this because for many years, I was just the worst version of myself because I just ignored the fact that we had an open kitchen. I just imagined that we continue to have a closed kitchen. It did not work that well. So let me, let me assure you. But uh, once I embraced the fact that an open kitchen, it worked out to be good. I'll, I'll finish you with one thing. The biggest transition for cooks when they are in a closed kitchen is not cooking like they're in a closed kitchen. One of the advantages you have is being in an open kitchen, and you should embrace that. And I've seen it time and time again where menus and the way service is created is like they're in a closed kitchen. And you can do things that a, a closed kitchen cannot do. 
And that transparency is what needs to be embraced. You can judo move the whole thing. And that really does change how you're going to cook. Everything should be a little bit more a la minute. There's a little bit less smoke and mirrors. And you may have to sort of cut back in some of the ambition of how you want to create a dish. But what you can do is sell that honest story that I've taken something from raw to finish right in front of your eyes. And that kind of experience, I think, is you just can't beat it. And that's something that we constantly at our restaurants, because most of our restaurants are open kitchen, have to embrace because you can really have a fucking weird experience. And I've been responsible for that if you try to cook in an open kitchen with a closed kitchen mindset. Uh, so, Sean, honestly, now after so many years, I would only want an open kitchen for all the reasons I described. Anyway, I'll shut the fuck up now. Let you guys get out of here. Thank you again for listening this week. Please check out Ileana's new book. Burn the place and stay tuned for next week. Give us five stars, however you rate this podcast, iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. Take it easy, guys.